0: ready to begin? All right, let's do this. And let us begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the covenants that you have made with us, that you are a God of promises, that we can rely on you, that you have promised us many and every good thing, and that we have your Son. Jesus Christ, to thank for our access to you and to the promises that you have made. So I pray that you will bless this time, I pray that you will help this study of your word that you have inspired will give us better understanding of who you are and how we interact with you. So we say thank you for all of this, for this opportunity, for your word, for your son. And then in his name we say this, Amen. Okay, how's everybody doing this morning? Good. <coughs> um, okay, so I had no idea we were celebrating the Lord's Supper today, but uh, it's fitting, I guess, that we talk about the Lord's Supper today. So I don't know if that was intentional or not. Was that intentional? Okay, cool. Um, So maybe we can do it with uh, our minds refreshed and, and really focus on what it is that we are recognizing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So uh, throughout all of this, I will also just, I mean, almost out of habit for myself, I will refer to it as the Eucharist. That is a term that comes from, for the Lord's Supper, that comes from 1 Corinthians when Paul is discussing the the sacrament or the the ordinance, and he he says, and you, you give thanks, and that comes, the Greek word eucharisto, or eucharisteo, is uh, is where we get that term. So it's something that's often used in the Catholic Church, and they take a very different view of the Lord's Supper than we do, and I'll talk about that at the end, so save your questions on that till the end. Um, but I don't think they should have a monopoly on the term. I mean, that's coming straight out of Scripture, and I think we should we should be uh, free to use it and encouraged to use it because it is a a thing for which we should be giving thanks. So uh, with that having been said, uh, the reason I want to talk about this, i I mean, it comes on the heels of last weekend where we talked about baptism. And we looked at what baptism means and what it symbolizes and we look to the Old Testament to see there where God laid the the foundations and the foreshadowings for what is to come in Christ and what they celebrate what what was celebrated in the Old Testament with the Exodus and other many other events and how when we celebrate baptism or when we practice the act of baptism, that we are looking back at those things which we're looking forward to Christ. So we're looking at Christ and we're looking at the precedents that were leading up to him. So really the central focus is on Christ. And the same is true with the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist uh, or communion, whatever term you want to use for it, the same is true of that. And it's not by accident, I think, that these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the two ordinances that we've been given to practice, because in the Old Testament, they are deeply tied together. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are the warp and woof of our relationship with God as we see in the Old Testament. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So where do we get, I don't want to say the superficial layer, but the the first layer of the practice of the Lord's Supper, and and that comes from the Gospels. And the Gospels recount how on the night before Christ was crucified, he and his disciples gathered together in the upper room, And what were they doing up there? They were celebrating Passover. So right off the bat, that should perk our minds up, saying, okay, what does this have to do with Passover? And, well, it has a lot to do with it. Um, And it's interesting that in the synoptic Gospels, the, the synoptics being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have... A description of the act itself being recounted. in John I'm sorry, there's a lot going on back there. So there's multiple conversations, um, and I'm not good at compartmentalizing. Um, so in John, the act of the Lord's Supper is is not even present. In that, but the event during which the Lord's Supper takes place, that upper room meal, that Passover meal, a quarter of the Gospel of John is taken up by Christ, what we call the upper room discourse, where he is elaborating on what is going on in all of this. And what is going on is Christ is inaugurating the new covenant the passover is celebrating the old covenant at the last supper christ is, is inaug- he, what he he will be inaugurating it on the cross but it will be the new covenant and what is the new covenant and we see that in jeremiah 31 31 through 34 and i'll read that <clears throat> indeed a time is coming says the lord when i will make a new covenant with the people of israel and judah It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt. Note that there's Passover, the Mosaic Covenant, so it won't be like that. For they violated that covenant even though I was like a faithful husband to them. Read the book of Hosea and you will see how Yahweh has been a faithful husband even when they have poured themselves out to false gods says the Lord, but I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds, and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer, people will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me, for all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. That is the new covenant. And when Christ is raised up on the cross, that is the inauguration of the new covenant. And when they are celebrating the Passover, Christ says that this is the new covenant so the, the, the connections are all very explicit, that this is a new covenant that is being established. But the Passover practice still has some relevance on it. And I on the second page there, I forgot to mention, we can move to the second page. Uh, Paul builds into that some more, and, and we look to, and that's again where Eucharisteo comes from. But uh, Paul is establishing that this is a covenant and a covenant meal that is done in remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. And that, that aspect of a covenant meal is very important in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. We see that again and again and again. One of the most strangest chapters of the Old Testament is Exodus 24. Does anyone know what happens in Exodus 24? It's when Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel climb up on Sinai and they have a meal with God. They They share a meal with him. And it's inaugurating that meal. It very explicitly says that it is inaugurating the new covenant that God has with Israel. So there is a meal being shared at the covenant. And that meal is a sign of the covenant, a sign of the cutting of the covenant. And then the celebration of that meal afterwards and the meal of the Passover, which I'm going to get to in a minute, are all symbols of the covenant between God and his people. And we see the Passover taking place many, many times through the Old Testament. There are, aside from Exodus itself, from the Passover, there are five explicit occurrences of Passover in the Old Testament. And then there's the original Passover itself in Exodus, and each of them have something to teach us about what was going on with Passover and why Christ inaugurates, or Bring, you know, initiates, but it, it hasn't quite happened until he, he's crucified, but why he chooses Passover as the time when he is laying out the ordinance of this new meal that's supposed to take place and what it means. And I think it's really, really helpful to go back and look at each of these celebrations of Passover in the Old Testament to see how The repetition of these motifs is really pointing us towards an ultimate goal, which is Christ. And what do I always say? What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So what God did at the Exodus is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. When we celebrate baptism, as we discussed last week, that is a recognition, a reenactment of what Christ did. And all those things in the Old Testament, we're, f- we're looking forward to that. So again, we're looking back and reenacting it. What happened before was a model and a promise for what was to come. So we, again, we, we neglect the Old Testament at our poverty. It's not our peril, but our poverty. So we really should be digging into this and seeing what, what is going on. So let's do that. Let's look at these uh, these Passover events, and <coughs> you'll note my little chart there for handy reference. But then we're going to break out each of them in a little more detail. Um, so let's let's just go to the third page. So first, I should note that, I think it's in Genesis 18, that there is what some people refer to as a proto-Passover, and that's where the, the three angels visit Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham tells her, quick, bake some bread before, so we can feed these guys. But he says, leave out the leaven, you know, so she is hurriedly baking unleavened bread. To to have a meal with, in effect, God. And Abraham had a covenant with God, did he not? So he had, it's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And what was promised to Abraham in that covenant? What? A son? Ultimately, I mean, he's promised three things. Blessing. Descendants and land. Interestingly enough, all three of those things are remedies for the curses that are laid down at the fall in the Garden of Eden. So there is toil, pain in childbirth, and exile from the garden. So all of those three promises that are made to Abraham, descendants is a remedy not to the pain of childbirth, but to the difficulty of it. The blessing that will ultimately come in Christ, but will be seen in the lives of people who follow him in the Old Testament, is a remedy to the labor and the work that they are cursed to having done. And the exile from Eden is undone by the land where God promises them what? Rest. So this, this promise these promises to Abraham, but this Abrahamic covenant is an important foundation for what's to come. And then ultimately we get to the Passover event, and you'll note that these meals, the, both the Lord's Supper and, the, and baptism in the Old Testament, find their most direct roots in the Exodus event. It's hard to understate or it's hard to overstate. That's the right word, I think, that I'm trying to say. It's hard to overstate just how important the Exodus event is. So much flows out of that. Baptism and the Eucharist both flow out of that. So, Therefore, it behooves us to really study that and see what's going on. It's not just the flannel graph story of Moses. So, what is going on in the first Passover? I mean, we all know the story. Uh, there's been the plagues that have been cast on Egypt, and they have hardened their hearts against God. So, God will bring the, the final plague, which is the destroyer. And it will kill or destroy the firstborn of all of Egypt, except for those homes that are painted with the blood of the lamb. The destroyer will pass over them. And it's on that basis, and and while they're in their homes, which has the blood over the door and on the sides of the door, they are supposed to be doing certain things celebrating the meal that passover is commemorating where they are supposed to have the lamb whose bones are not to be broken which is pointing towards Christ whose bones were not broken on the cross they're supposed to be having the the unleavened bread for they are supposed to, for they are leaving in haste and do not have time to prepare everything and so i mean god is giving them these ordinances now so that in the future they will be looking back on them and remembering the haste with, with which God acted. And there's the bitter herbs as well. These are all elements of the Passover meal. So the meal is a central act. So they are inside together, their whole family, eating this meal while the destroyer is outside bringing death. So they are saved from death by the participation of this meal. That's the first Passover. And then the exodus happens, and they cross through the Red Sea, and we talked about that last week and what that symbolizes. And when they get to the other side, we see in number, well, then when they get to the other side, first Moses goes up on Sinai, and the law is given. And then the Moses and the elders go up on Sinai, and the covenant is ratified through the meal. And then we see in Numbers 9, here's no, the second Passover that's, rec- that's held in the Old Testament, is the first Passover that's held in the new state of freedom that they have. They are no longer slaves. They are no longer in the land of death. But they are now in the land of the living, And God is their sovereign. And in that state, they are now holding the Passover once again. And it's a covenant renewal ceremony. They are renewing their covenant that was just made with Yahweh. And it's interesting to note there that in Numbers 9, there are those who were defiled by dealing with dead bodies so they were unclean they are not permitted from p- participating in the Passover and so God makes the allowance that the following months they can, those who were unclean can still hold the Passover once again. So for the unclean there is still the opportunity to renew the covenant with God and enter into his Rest and his protection and his salvation. And you're going to see that become important in a little bit. So then there's no account of Passover being held again until the book of Joshua. And the beginning of the book of Joshua is a it's just it's a beautiful recapitulation of all the events of the Exodus. So you have the crossing of the Jordan, which last week we talked about was similar to the crossing of the Red Sea and how there was a passage from one state to another. In the case of the Exodus and the Red Sea, there was the passage from the land of death into the land of life, and by the crossing of the Jordan, there is a passing from the, land, from the state of restlessness and wandering and to enter into God's, into the promised land and into a state of rest. Obviously, their work wasn't done, but they were now at rest. Their wandering was over. Now the work was starting, but they were at rest as a people. And what's the first thing that they do once they cross over when they are at Gilgal? They hold a Passover. So they hold the Passover, they, they, they participate in this covenant renewal once they have entered into God's rest. And they also, this is now the second generation, the first generation for the most part, having died out because of their sin at Kadesh Bernia. This is now the second generation. What do they do along with the Passover? That they circumcise all the men which is the circumcision. It's the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So again, you have a dual covenant renewal. You have the Abrahamic covenant being reaffirmed by God's people, and you have the Mosaic covenant being reaffirmed by God's people. And the sharing of this meal is the act of that covenant affirmation. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. And there's plenty of other Exodus parallels going on at the beginning of Joshua. My favorite is, I love it, is right before they go to Jericho, who does Joshua encounter? The commander of Yahweh's armies. Who? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Christ, it's the Son of God before he is incarnate in flesh. And what does he... What does he tell Joshua to do? It's the same thing that Moses is told at the burning bush, to take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. So the, the Exodus parallels at the beginning of Joshua are, are very, very important for us to note. So you have the same thing, in effect, is happening, that God's people are passing from a state of condemnation in whatever form that is, death, slavery, whatever, wandering, and they're passing over into a state of life or freedom or rest. It's, And again, that's what we talked about last week. That's what baptism is. But you also now have this commemoration and covenant renewal that goes along with that, and that's the Passover. So these really go hand in hand. So what's the next Passover we see? Now, I should note that there are many allusions, references, and Passover motifs that are present chronologically between this Passover and the next one. And we'll talk about one of those here in a little bit, just to give you an idea of how the Passover and the covenant is present, even though a particular Passover event is not described for a while. So the next the next Passover event is uh in 2 Chronicles 30. And some of you are probably sick of me talking about this because it's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. And uh <coughs> it's it's a really, really profound event in the the life of God's people. So in it uh At this point in Chronicles, the Davidic kingdom is split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel, the northern kingdom, has been apostate from the beginning and has turned away from God from the beginning and has followed a counterfeit worship of Yahweh from the beginning. But they have now been judged and been wiped out by the Assyrians. Hezekiah was the last king to be king when the northern kingdom was still there. And it was wiped out pretty much practically the first day he was king. But he was king when there was an Israel. So, and in Judah, Hezekiah's father had been king for, I don't remember what it was, 20 years or so, Ahaz. And Ahaz was probably the worst of the king's. I mean, even worse than Ahab, possibly, because Ahab, he, was, he totally forsook Yahweh and worshipped Baal, and he just totally embraced Baal worship, but he didn't have a temple to defile. And he wasn't also in the line of Christ, where the king, the line of David and the kings of Judah were, how do I want to put this? supposed to be functioning as as high priests of Melchizedek and leading their people. That's a whole other conversation. But Ahab never had that burden. Ahaz has that burden. And yet, with the same gusto of Ahab, he embraces Baal and apostatizes against Yahweh. And so he leads the people into this great apostasy. And then Hezekiah comes. And Hezekiah has a heart for Yahweh like few of the kings had. Like no, the, none of the kings except for David and Josiah. He was a man of of God. And so the first thing he does is has the temple cleansed, where it had been a place of apostasy and, and Baal worship. Now it's being cleansed. And he finds that there are no priests, or there's only like six priests or so, a handful, who are pure and can... Do this work and purify other Levites to enter the temple and, and do this work or to make sacrifices, and so you have this constantly growing group of pu- of Levites who are ritually clean in order to do this work. And ultimately, the time comes for the Passover, and w- the whole people are rejoicing and they are desiring to renew the covenant that they had with God. After being led astray and in total abominable apostasy, they want to renew the covenant and to live in submission to Yahweh. And they find that they don't have enough priests to do it. So they have to take what was offered in Numbers 9 and practice and hold the Passover the following month, which God made, in his grace, made allowance for. And so they do this, and even in in doing this, Hezekiah invites the remnant from the northern kingdom to come down and join him. And most of them mocked him or his messengers, but some from some of the tribes come south and join with Judah in re-entering into a proper relationship with God. To forsake the foolhardiness of their fathers, as it says. And even then, they celebrate the Passover unclean because there weren't enough priests to purify them all. And this is where Hezekiah functions as, as the high priest of Melchizedek. He's the king, but he's not one of the Levites, but he intercedes on behalf of his people, and he asks that God will overlook their uncleanness and look at what their hearts are. It says that God heard Hezekiah and healed the people. It's a beautiful image of what Christ does for us. But the other part of that is, once again, you have a covenant renewal taking place with the practice of Passover. Passover. So the next Passover is at the very end of Chronicles, and it's with Josiah. And it's a similar situation where <coughs> the two kings that separate Hezekiah and Josiah, apostate, are also turn away from, from Yahweh. And Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, he rules, I think it's 55 years, so that's... Almost three generations of people that were under Manasseh's apostate rule. And that's a, you know, that's a long time for the Passover to be once again forgotten. And it is forgotten. And Josiah becomes king. And he wants to reinstitute the Passover again. Except, he doesn't remember, you know, they don't remember how to do it. They don't even, they have forgotten it so deeply that they have forgotten the law. And one of the priests finds a copy of the law in the temple. And it's with that that they are in a, able to start to enact the Passover in the proper fashion. But again, you have a king following apostates, now a righteous king. Renewing the covenant with God and bringing Judah back into a proper relationship with God. So it's the same thing over and over again. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. And the last recurrence of the Passover in the Old Testament is in Ezra 6. And here it, it, it's actually a really, really fitting book end and a setting up of the Gospels. So what, what happened, I mean, what, what was Ezra doing? When, where, where was he leading the people from? From Babylon, from exile, from 70 years of exile. And believe me, the Babylonian exile is very intentionally a model or a type of the exodus. So, the bondage that's taking place in Babylon is very much like the bondage that they were in in Egypt. And the passage from Babylon back to the land is a type of exodus. And that's very explicitly mentioned in in several places. And when they get back to the land, they rebuild the temple. And after the temple is rebuilt, with great joy, they what? They renew the covenant with God by celebrating the Passover. So once again, you have a disruption of relationship with God, and yet you have ultimately a renewal of relationship with God. And that renewal is commemorated by the Passover. So it's it's a very distinct thing, and it's going to be very relevant for us. We're getting there. <coughs> so uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention about that. Oh, the other end of the bookend. So, it, it, you know, you have the Exodus at one end of the Old Testament, and you have Ezra and Nehemiah, but here this Passover of Ezra at the other end. So the whole events, the historical chronology of the Old Testament is bookended by these Passovers. And this last Passover is celebrated after the temple is completed. And I think it's interesting that, you know, in Haggai, and in Ezra, it even says that they completed it through the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah. And we, you can read Haggai. I mean, it's... what. It, I think it might be the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, it uh, in chapter two of Haggai, they're you know the people are discouraged. They're saying, "How can this thing ever compare to Solomon's temple?" And Haggai says, "Don't worry. The glory of this temple will far exceed far exceed that of the old." And I don't think he was talking about. The building itself. He's talking about the fact that the incarnation, the God's greatest revelation, the Son of God himself, will be in that temple, and it's that temple that will have the veil ripped. Not Solomon's temple, but the, the second temple. And they don't understand what's coming, but God is promising them that the glory of that thing that they are building will be greater than that of the first. So, it's it's a fitting, the, the the Ezra Passover is a fitting conclusion or bookend to all of these Passovers that have taken place in the Old Testament. And there are others that are worth noting. For example, if you want to go to the third page, this is this is a theme that is not limited to just the explicit Passovers, but we see it again and again. We see it in Samuel in various places with regards to David. We see Passover motifs, but I think one of the craziest is the story of Rahab, which when we read Rahab, do we ever think of Passover? Not at all, but let me tell you, it's very deliberately building on the Passover of the Old Testament. So I built a very handy little chart for you guys to follow along. And you can see the parallels that take place. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that Joshua, when, in, in writing this account of Rahab, is very deliberately, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, modeling this story. Not modeling, I mean, it happened, but using language that echoes the language that Moses wrote in the Exodus. So here you can see all the parallels that exist. That, that, and when you read it, go back and read it after church and read chapter 2 of, Jos- of Joshua and think about Passover as you read it. But here's some parallels. In the Exodus with Moses, the midwives intercede for Moses and they speak shrewdly or they, they trick the pharaoh into thinking that Moses is dead. Rahab does the exact same thing with the spies, and the spies are standing in for the whole people of God. So she intercedes for them and protects them, and she also speaks shrewdly or deceives the king of Jericho. So she's doing the exact same things that the midwives were doing. In the in Exodus, God promises that the the fruit of the Exodus event itself, by that, his name will be known in all the world. And when the spies get to Jericho, which is, you know, for back then, quite a ways away from Egypt, a random prostitute living in a literal hole in the wall knows all about what happened. You, When you read the account, she's the one saying... Yahweh did this, and Yahweh did this, and Yahweh did this. She knows. So she is the living fulfillment or an example of the living, a living example of the fulfillment, I should say. Sorry, I'm getting out of order. Of what God promised will happen because of the Exodus. And then in the Exodus, God tells Israel to paint the post and lintel of their doors with the blood as a sign of salvation, I mean, you know, of a, as a sign, and the destroyer will pass over them, yielding their salvation. The spies, how do they go out of Rahab's house? They go out the window. So, in effect, that's the door, that's the means of exit for them. And what do they tell her to hang from that? A red rope. So it's that is the parallel to the blood over the door in Exodus. And during the Passover event, Israel must gather their families together in these houses. If they're outside of the houses that are marked with the blood, they will be destroyed. And Rahab, she also must gather all of her family into her house as Jericho is being destroyed. And it's very it goes into great detail about who needs to be in there, and if they, if they are not present, if her family is not present in the house with the red mark on the point of entry, they will be destroyed. And ultimately, Israel is saved from destruction, and so too is Rahab and her family saved from destruction. The story of Rahab is very explicitly a Passover story. But it's more than that in the sense that when you read the dialogue between the spies and Rahab, it's very, very intentionally covenantal language. They say, we agree to this, but we are not going to be held responsible if you do not abide by these conditions. And she says, literally, I accept the terms of this agreement. I mean, it depends on what translation you're reading, but, I mean, she's, she is, they, they are participating in covenantal language. And this really emphasizes the covenantal aspect of Passover. And that leads us back to where we are when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Christ and his disciples, they were gathered together... And they were not renewing the covenant, but inaugurating the new covenant. So, a Lord's Supper without covenantal devotion is missing something. So, when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, just as, and we are to remember that new covenant every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to Have in mind what that covenant entails. Just as God's people, every time they celebrated the Passover, were looking back and remembering what was going on, what happened with the original Passover, and with all of the subsequent ones that that came after that. With each of those covenant renewals, there is also a redemption out of darkness. In Joshua, there is a redemption from wandering into rest. With Hezekiah, there is a redemption from apostasy into right relationship with God and God's grace on his people. In Josiah, there is a covenant renewal that leads from apostasy to a proper relationship with God. In Ezra, there, there is a Passover and a covenant renewal that leads from exile and now into proper temple worship. And with the Lord's Supper, there is a passage from death for each one of us. There is a covenant renewal that leads to new life in Christ. And so every time we partake of this, we are not just recognizing what Christ did for us, although that is absolutely essential, but what what that death and sacrifice did. I mean, it restores our relationship with God. It is a covenant renewal. Does that make sense? Okay. So, unfortunately, this has been twisted in many traditions in the church. And it... In many traditions, it plays a very different role. And there's twisting in its efficacy, in how it works for us, but there's also twisting in in what is actually happening during during the, the Eucharist. So the biggest... The Catholic Church is the locus of all of these differences. Other traditions will differ with with us in various aspects. The Orthodox Church differs with us in some aspects. Uh, the Anglican Church will differ with us in some aspects. And so on, et cetera, et cetera. But the Catholic Church differs with us in all aspects of this, other than the fact that it needs to be done. So let me... I just want to. I'll close the class for a few minutes here, addressing some of these issues, because I think this is something that people deal with. I mean, this is a an, an issue that divides the church, um, and it, it's an issue that we should have better understanding on, not just what we believe, but also what other people's believe, and and how we can, we can articulate those differences. So. Uh, We're going to go there then. So, uh, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper to a Catholic? It's actually very different from ours. What I just went through in terms of drawing the parallels between the Lord's Supper and the covenant renewal of the Passovers in the Old Testament, that is recognized but really functionally not what's going on when what a Roman Catholic believes is going on when they participate in this sacrament. And I will use the word sacrament here because that is the word that they use, and I think we can use it too. But again, what we mean by sacraments and what they mean by sacraments are different things. So in the Roman Catholic Church, excuse me, there are seven sacraments. There used to be over 100 of them, but they've narrowed it down. And those seven sacraments, I may forget one, I've got to think about this. There's baptism, Lord's Supper, uh, confirmation, confession, marriage, priestly orders, and last rites. So those are the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And this points to a bigger difference that we have with them, which is God's grace. So we have a totally different view of the grace of God than they do. It is, to them, God's grace is dispensed in a very real way through the participation in these sacraments. So the way it was described to me, and I will describe to you, is, and this was described to me, I went to a Catholic high school, and this was how... In one of the theology classes, it was described to me. So this is coming from a Catholic. If it sounds disrespectful, talk to them, not me. But it's actually a really, it was a very helpful image in how it works. So they say, imagine you have a gas tank, a spiritual gas tank. And when your tank is full, you've you, you're, you got a long way you can run. But as you sin, that gas level is dropping down lower and lower and lower. And if you keep sinning, eventually you're going to run on empty and you're going to come to a stop. But the way you refill your tank is by the participation of the sacraments. So every time you participate in one of those, God's putting some spiritual gas back into your spiritual gas tank. And so that, that keeps you filled with God's grace, is the participation of these things. Now, if that sounds like Works. Don't talk to me about that. I mean, that's not my fault. But so I mean, obviously, some of these these sacraments are only good one time. I mean, you're only you know in the Catholic Church, you're baptized one time. You're definitely going to get last rites one time. I mean, you, you, you know, you're not. That's not something that that you're going to do on a regular basis. But other sacraments the two that are really the most common that you're going to be using to refill your grace gas tank is confession and the Lord's Supper. And that's why there's this constant need, I got to go to confession, because it's like you're running low on on gas, you got to go fill up your tank. So you go and confess your sins. Or you go into Mass and you partake of the Lord's Supper. So obviously that is a significant difference that we have with them in terms of the efficacy. For us, we are remembering what Christ did. What was that? Once for all. What he did, well, that's going to come back up too, the once for, once for all. But we're remembering what he did, and we're renewing the covenant that, that, is, that he made, the new covenant. We are participating in covenant renewal We are devoting ourselves to submission to him. There is another significant difference, though. And this is where people use a lot of big words. Uh, And so the, the word that is used to describe what the Roman Catholics believe is transubstantiation. So, and that just comes from Latin... Don't worry about it. Um, there's another term that will that is used for a different view, not the one that we hold, called consubstantiation. So what that is is, but what I'll explain consubstantiation a little bit at the end. But transubstantiation is they teach that when the bread and wine are consecrated when they are blessed, that they become literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So that when you take of those elements, you are literally consuming his flesh and drinking his blood. And there are many problems with this. So the the consumption of those elements is seen as a sacrifice. We are re-immolating Christ. Every time somebody, in their view, partakes, Christ is once again sacrificed. So it is not a once-for-all event. The cross is, in effect, diluted. There are a host of other problems that flow out of this. I mean, we could go on about what happens when you digest something, and Christ's body being incorruptible. I think there are hermeneutical issues that go on here that are real problems in terms of how they are interpreting the words of Christ in the Gospels. I mean, in some ways they are taking him too literally, and in some ways not literally enough. But when he says, I am the door, I am the vine, does he mean he's literally a door and literally a vine? No, but these are the kinds of statements where he says, this is my body, this is my blood. It's the same kind of statement. He is using that to point to a greater reality. So that's why I say there's, there's hermeneutical issues. But I think perhaps the biggest issue, if you'll turn to the last page of the notes, and I'm sorry, I had to make the text really small in order to fit it on one page and not have like two lines of text on a fifth page. Which for me would drive my OCD bonkers. Um, plus, it would waste paper. So I included at the very end of the notes the Chalcedonian Creeds. So remember, there's two great creeds of the church that all traditions of the church affirm. There's the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. And the Nicene Creed affirms many doctrines of the church, but the primary doctrine it is affirming is is that God is Trinity. And then the Chalcedonian Creed comes along and intentionally runs parallel to it and clarifies further the relationship of Christ's human and divine natures. And it is on the basis of this creed, which is an articulation of Scripture, that we affirm that Christ is fully God and fully man. And there are many things that flow from this. But if we affirm that Christ is fully man and that his human nature is a fully human nature except for sin, then that means that it really is fully human. Are any of us, any of our bodies, capable of being in more than one place at one time? Absolutely not. We are not omnipresent. But if the elements of the Lord's Supper truly become the literal body and literal blood of Christ, is that not running counter to the creed's very strong affirmation that Christ's human nature is a fully and proper human nature? He cannot be in his human form omnipresent. Where is he right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's not in every church, every Catholic church that is consecrating bread. So, it, t- to hold to that view really runs counter to the to the Chalcedonian Creed, which the Catholic Church itself affirms. So it's it's a really uh, I, I mean this is a good case where you know it's like we really want to stand on these creeds. I mean it's a good thing to recognize them and say yeah but what about this and how do you square this which you affirm and this thing which you affirm which are contradictory so there's a lot more that can be said about this subject and this is not a class on transubstantiation but I did want to at least bring it up because I think it's something that people have questions about and it's good to at least have some passing familiarity with, with the issues. But the real focus of what I wanted to talk about today as we close here is when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are participating in an age-old act by all of God's people in renewing the covenants that he has made with us. In the past, before Christ, they were renewing covenants that would lead to Christ, and now we are renewing a covenant that he has inaugurated with us, the new covenant, and we are looking back at him hanging on the cross, broken and bloody. And the act that he did in having himself hoisted up there and dying and bearing our sins, just as, well bearing our sins and then rising three days later so you you really have this beautiful meshing of the baptism and the lord's supper and and it we should see them jointly i mean they are the two things that god told us to do and they are tied together and they all point to the same thing which is jesus christ and the salvation that he offers I will end there. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. Uh, foreshadowing of Melchizedek in Genesis, bringing out the bread and wine. Yeah, I mean, there is... I think a strong case can be made that there is intentional foreshadowing there. I mean the Old Testament by its very nature is is typological. As as one author that I've been reading a lot says, he calls them promised shaped patterns that you see in the Old Testament and those are everywhere. The the what we just talked about with Rahab is another promised shaped pattern that is being borne out in the Old Testament. So I think it is very likely that there is some connection that's going on there. And I mean, Melchizedek plays into these other Passovers as well. I mean, when I talked about Hezekiah and, and Josiah, those kings, I mean, were intended, God intended the kings in the line of David to function as the high priest. I mean, and there's a whole, that's a whole conversation that I can't have in two minutes, because it, I mean, it goes into Samuel, the book of Samuel, and David, and why, why is the ark moved into Jerusalem? On what basis? On what basis does David perform these sacrifices? On what basis does David wear the ephod? All of these things, how how does David do all of this stuff? I mean, keep in mind, when the ark is moved into Jerusalem, That was in the seventh year of David's reign, and before that it was a Canaanite city. But who was the first king of Jerusalem? It was Melchizedek. So it's on the basis of succeeding Melchizedek that David is able to make claims. And so all of that stuff, there's there's very deliberate parallels with Melchizedek. I mean, that's a a very rich mine of of theology to be dug out there, is, is what I'm trying to shotgun at you guys (laughs) so um, any other questions yes sure Um, so I'll just read that let me just read the first part there that that you were referring to Uh, we then following the Holy Fathers all with one consent teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood. Okay, so what that means is consubstantial uh, is saying the same essence, the same substance. So with God the Father, Jesus Christ is consubstantial. He is homoousius, is how they say it in Greek, which in the Nicene Creed. He is of the, the, the Son is of the same substance of the Father. So, But in the incarnation, He is of the same substance that we are so he is consubstantial with the father he is consubstantial with us he is the same essence as the father he has a full and complete except for sin human nature he's consubstantial with us and it's that tension that we call the hypostatic union does that answer or do you want more elaboration yes that that with the that's called the kenosis in philippians 2 and that very much is one of the key, not the only, but one of the key passages that we would look to to, uh, to see how or what kind of a relation, how his human nature is like our human nature. And there's, there's three Greek terms there, likeness, form, and so on. And each of them add a nuance to what's going on and, and how, he, how he is the same as us except for sin. So that's a a good I mean that's a good place to go. That's a very astute uh, observation. Yes. Yes, I I meant to do that. Thank you. So consubstantiation uh, means that it's what they they often will call the real presence—that that, that Christ—it's not literally bread and I mean, sorry, it's literally bread and wine. It's not literally Christ's body and blood, but His body and blood are present with it. They're of the same essence, and so they—it's what people often will call the real presence view. So that His body and blood are still at the right hand of the father but in a in a in a way they are present there in a spiritual sense not in a physical sense and so when you are partaking of it then you are still uh being nourished by the body and blood of Christ a spiritual nourishment uh but it's not a physical transformation of them right that's not the view that we hold. When we partake of the, the bread and the wine, they are bread and wine, but they are, we, they, we are using them to point us to certain things so that we participate in this covenant renewal and recognize what he has done for us and proclaim it publicly. that answer your question? Okay. good. Anything else? Anyone? Okay. Well, thank you. I hope these last two weeks uh, have given us just a little more insight on on baptism and the Eucharist, and uh, hopefully really helped to clarify what is going on with them, or maybe I've confused you. I don't know. But I I hope it's been a, a, a clarifying thing so that when we participate in them, or look back on when we participated in them that we really appreciate what is going on and what God and what Christ have done for us. So I will end there. Should I mention what's going on next? Do you want to say something about the next Sunday school? Okay. Well, I think this was the last email uh Sunday school class for in the in the sanctuary, and we're gonna be breaking up into the smaller. Uh, Yes, it's not. Yeah, we're going to be starting up other Sunday school classes next week. So, um, so this was the last all church Sunday school in here. I mean, I think we'll be doing them again periodically, but we're going to be going back to the smaller classes for a while. So, so I I just again thank you all for for being here and and for hearing what we've had to say and and uh, I hope that it has been been helpful. So, let's pray. <coughs> Lord, thank you that you are who you are. You are the great shepherd of the sheep and that we are your sheep. I thank you and I praise you that you have shepherded us from the land of death into the land of life in your son, Jesus Christ, that we are your people. I thank you for the covenants that you have made, that you are the God of promises, that you will keep your promises. We know that you have promised your son will return, and we know he will return, and we look forward to that day. So thank you for this time, for the edification that comes to our souls from your word, that your word is a vast and bottomless well that will never dry up, that we can study and study and study and still see you in new places in it and see your son, Jesus Christ, on every page. We thank you for this wondrous thing. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again, everybody.